add a bit of sunshine to your home with Easy Living Furniture's Garden Furniture Sale with stunning dining sets, cracking egg chairs and relaxing sun loungers that are in stock and ready for delivery there really is something for everyone and with an extra 10% off sale prices and free delivery over 399 now really is the time to let your garden shine Garden Sale now on Visit Easy Living Furniture Don't miss out Find your local store online at easylivingfurniture.ie Leia Healthcare It's good to live Proud sponsor of the Real Health Podcast with Carl Henry Folks, welcome to the Real Health Podcast in association with Leia Healthcare with me, Carl Henry. We've covered nutrition lots of times on the podcast over the course of the last year and a half. And I love bringing in experts who can give us tips and content that can improve your life. Most recently, we had Evan Regan from the Mayo football team on giving us performance tips. And today, I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Danny Lennon from Signet Nutrition, who's going to give us tips around fueling your life and life-changing health tips. Danny, Welcome to the Real Health Podcast. Carl, thanks for having me. Pleasure How's life? Oh, good, good. Can't complain. You've had a busy uh, couple, you've been all over the world, lecturing yeah. and working and all kinds of things. Yeah, so it's been a, a bit of a hectic while over the past, I suppose, seven, eight months. And for someone who, like me who kind of likes a bit of routine, it's been a bit chaotic. But back in here now, and we have a thankfully lovely day in Dublin. So, so tell us about, good. first of all, about you. I want to learn a bit, little bit more about you in terms sure. of Sigma Nutrition and your own background and where your love for health came from. So mm. tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I suppose to try and keep it to... Uh, cliff notes so I don't bore people. My main interest originally originated, as I think a lot of people do, from their own interest in sport or athletics. So growing up, I played quite a lot of Gaelic football and soccer. Um, then when I went to college originally, I was studying uh, science education. So that was my first exposure to reading research. And I suppose in my spare time, I started looking, well, what things can help me in the gym or on the field to get better? So I started looking at research related to sports science. That led me to kind of some nutrition stuff. Then I got more interested in the health side of that. And so really I was reading about nutrition research as like a part-time kind of hobby. And kind of, I suppose, fast forward a few years, my original degree was science education. I actually spent a year as a secondary school teacher here teaching wow. physics, uh, biology, and maths. Uh, but during that time, I knew that it was this kind of nutrition thing that would, kept coming back and took the decision to quit teaching, went back and did a master's in nutritional sciences down in UCC. Um, and then off the back of that started Sigma Nutrition, which at this point I would say is a, a company that puts out educational content around nutrition and particularly trying to translate what we see in science into something more usable and, and pragmatic, mainly through conversations with, with researchers and, and our own seminars and things like that. But that's a kind of an overview of how it kind of all came about, I guess. And the kind of clients that you work with, I know you do a lot of online coaching and online work, and they're in kind of combat sports and multi-sports. So what, what, you know, what kind of sports do you work yeah, with? Yeah, so we have had quite a gamut of different types of clients, but one of our big things in relation to sport has been uh, combat sports as well as other weight, uh, sports where people are making weight for competition. So for example, right now we would work with a large amount of powerlifters, a lot of them based here in Ireland as well. Um, had quite a number that competed at world championships recently that we would work with. Um, and then, as you say, I've worked with a lot of combat sport athletes, um, pro MMA guys, boxing, judo, taekwondo, um, and different sports like that, where there's a weight-making component. Um, but beyond that, we've also had clients that come for general health, nutrition stuff as well. But on the athlete side, it'd be mainly around making weight that we've worked with. 
And on that topic, I'm fascinated when I watch mm. uh, fighters in the lead up to a competition and in the lead up to that weigh-in. Because there's always the, the palaver and the dramatics at the way, which I'm not sure is particularly real. But the, the real part of it is the dramatic weight drop and mm. the difference in physique in terms of tone and shape and just sinew, I suppose, for want of a better word. Right. What does it take to do that? Don't give us all the tips because that's what you're paid for. I get right, that. Yeah. But give us an outline for what they have to do to make the weight. For I'm sure our, uh, our listeners will be fascinated by that. Yeah, I mean, for something like, let's say, an MMA athlete who has 24 hours or more between their weigh-in and their competition you can see quite large acute weight drops in that final week to a few days. Um, so oftentimes we'd have guys that could be losing eight, 9% of their body weight in a few days through different strategies. Now, one thing to keep in mind, because when people first hear this, it's like, oh, I saw Conor McGregor drop like 20 pounds in a week. Like, what should I be doing? It's like, first of all, it's nothing to do with changing their body composition of those few days. We're okay. not losing fat mass, really. It's manipulating things like the amount of water that's stored within their muscle, amount of carbohydrate they've stored in their muscle, uh, gut residue, which is the undigested food essentially sit in the gastrointestinal tract. All these things carry a certain amount of weight. So we can drop them quite dramatically in an acute fashion over a few days with a few different strategies I'm happy to talk about. And that will drop someone's weight. Like I say, we can typically do maybe 8% of a body weight reduction in that kind of final week. They make weight. And then in that time frame is when it becomes really important of how do we rehydrate them, refuel them before competition and their weight will come back up within that 24 hours to their baseline weight or above. Um, so it's, yeah, pretty dramatic weight reductions based around water manipulation, which is where things like dehydration or saunas mm -hmm. people typically hear about or water loading strategies and then losing carbohydrate through either low carbohydrate diet and glycogen depletion um, and then some gut residue stuff as well. But uh, yeah, it's pretty dramatic and not necessarily, it, it definitely carries a lot of health risks as well. Um, and it's an unfortunate side effect of having weight classes in sports. Ideally, you wouldn't have anyone cutting any weight at all. We could just let people compete, but um, that's not very practical. So we've got to try and help do it in the safest way we possibly can. And of course, that's where working with experts like yourself comes into because they're, I'm, you see online, and so I got sent one over the over over the weekend of a plan for someone to cut weight before a competition that was delivered by a friend in the gym, and they said, "So, oh, what do you think of this?" I'm like, "This is just absolutely crazy." So, if anyone mm. is you know competing, go to the experts, get their expertise, pick their brains. That's what they do, and that's what mm. they study. And someone who's a scientist like yourself is exactly the place to go. Mm. Um, that's some weight loss. Mm, it's incredible. Ten percent. So if you're hundred, if you're hundred kilos, that's ten kilos over the course for for a weight. Yeah. It's massive. And and consider when you see a lot of guys who go beyond that. So we try and keep people within a certain range. And this comes to like long term management of within that final week that we'd have them that their body composition is close enough to that weight that maybe at most are doing like an eight percent cut. But you can see a lot of guys that with just from past experiences have done huge weight cuts. I was talking to one of our athletes recently and he had a past experience before he worked with us of dropping nine kilos in 12 hours. Hours? Hours, 12 hours before weighing. Um, so you see all sorts of crazy practices, which is why this stuff gets pretty dangerous. Um, and you see this across other sports as well. Like one that's fascinating is, is jockeys because they ha are in this unique position where they have to weigh in before a race, but they also do a weigh-in afterwards as well. So it kind of prevents them actually fully rehydrating as, uh, to that point as well, plus just trying to keep their body weight down consistently. And they're doing that like every day. And so some of their nutritional practices are just 
in, incredible, just insane. Um, and like, a lot like, of like what? Give, it, give us some, give us so some insight. So one that's, uh, anyone that's into horse racing will have probably heard of this idea of flipping, which is essentially where they induce vomiting in themselves via different means. But one that is quite common with jockeys would be where they might get a large amount of like Coca-Cola or their carbonated beverage down off a whole load of this stuff and then start inducing themselves to make themselves sick. Essentially the idea of getting rid of all the contents that are in their gut to lose some weight there. Um, things like sitting in a sauna suit with the heating on as they drive to the racetrack, going into saunas before they go away and all the typical stuff people hear and you stack that on top of themselves and they'd be going into a race after that day, maybe not eating as much more than an apple perhaps in some cases. Now that's not obviously every jockey and there's a few groups in actually Liverpool, John Moore's university who've done a lot of research. Um, some research actually been done down in Limerick as well um, and trying to help get better quality science-based recommendations to jockeys, which many of them now use, but definitely some of the old school strategies are pretty crazy. Because to try and perform after that, you couldn't, you could work after right. something like that, let alone perform in a big event and, and optimize your performance. And I, I think that particularly with horse racing is people don't realize how taxing it is for a jockey, right? Like if you have no, uh, if, if people are detached from that sport, they may think, oh, you're really just sitting on a horse, right? It's like, try and do that. It's like really physically demanding work. And like I say, they're not able to fully rehydrate and refuel after this weigh-in because they have to be within a certain um, weight after the, the race as well. So that's one crazy sport. That is for sure. Yeah. Okay, enough about picking your brains on, on high performance. I want to bring it back to our listener base. Mm. So in, I want 10 simple tips. I know you, there's four non-nutrition and six more kind of nutrition-specific tips for optimum performance on a day-to-day life mm. basis. The first one that you tip on is, is sleep, mm. crucial for the body. Yeah. So sleep is thankfully one that more and more people are hearing about. I think and we realize the importance, the difficulty comes in actually applying that and trying to find the time because there's so much stuff we could do with our time nowadays. The first thing or the easiest thing to extract is time for sleep. And so we try and focus on that quite a lot with people because not only does it have direct impacts, like we see quite clearly sleep restriction even over a couple of days, not only does it screw up most kind of processes in the body, but then it has knock-on effects of if people are trying to eat healthier, for example. We know two nights of sleep restriction, so about four to five hours rather than say seven or eight, that can lead to changes in certain hormones that make you wake up with a higher appetite and preferentially seek out more what we call palatable foods, so foods that are tastier and more rewarding to the brain typically what we think of as processed or junk foods. And so immediately, no matter what our best intentions are, with a couple of nights of sleep restriction, we're now kind of setting up to make things like healthy eating habits more difficult to stick to. Um, so in terms of how we start working with this, there's probably a few things that we I'd advise on. One is, as much as is practical, having a regular sleep and wake time. So most of the time, I'd say I think most people probably don't have much control over their wake time if they have a job that they have to go to. So the other thing we can control is maybe a sleep time. Um, and again, not easy for everyone depending on their circumstances, but trying to have that as regular as possible and giving themselves enough time in bed. Uh, second, probably trying to keep the room as dark as possible and probably fairly cool. So just not having heating on during the night, for example, fairly cool room, as pitch black as possible, either with like blackout blinds or just definitely not LEDs or screens left on during the night is probably good. And then trying to limit the amount of that light exposure in the hour or so before bed is probably important. So I think there are some things that can 
from a starting point, if you're not doing them, would be a good place to start in relation to sleep. Okay. And you, you, you kind of tapped on it there, but light exposure is becoming more and more prevalent as an issue in terms of health and in terms, obviously, in terms of sleep, mm. but in terms of overall health, because we're all glued to a screen that's emitting light right. that is not necessarily good for our bodies in, in high quantities. Mm. Yeah. So one of the interesting things, and people may have seen this idea of blue light or artificial light or looking at light from a screen, and people are kind of aware of, maybe I shouldn't do that right before bed. Uh, we know the idea of this thing, blue light, it's essentially the wavelength in light that's blue and also the green wave light as well suppresses this hormone melatonin, which helps us get to sleep. And so having a lot of that at night that we can now have with artificial lighting, LED screens and so on is probably not a good idea. It's going to impact our health and knocks out of sync things that we call circadian rhythms. So different processes in the body, different hormones run on this 24-hour pattern. It's a circadian rhythm, and so that can be altered when we get exposure to this light. So this is why people now see things like a blue light filter on their phone or people wearing blue blocking glasses or at least trying to use a blue light filter on their laptop or, or device. Uh, people are starting to see that. It's the idea of limiting that light exposure just before bed. Probably the other side of that, which doesn't get talked about as much, is getting bright light exposure during the day. And so it's not that light and bright blue light is a bad thing. It's that we want to time it early in the day, not at the late in the day. The easiest way to do this is getting outdoors. And so even in a brightly lit room like this, on even a cloudy day outside, you're probably going to have 10 times that light intensity. On a sunny day, probably 100 times. And so that is what we want. We want lots of bright light exposure early in the day, limit that in the night, and that's where we get benefits for circadian rhythms and sleep. And so this could be, can we get outdoors? Um, and a lot of that, again, is mitigated by people's work schedules and they might not have full control over it, but even getting outside for whatever time they can can be pretty useful. Um, and for people who maybe can't control that, there's other things like uh, blue light boxes um, where you get, it's used in seasonal affective disorder, but you can also get that for people who are, say, stuck inside a lot. We use it a lot with our shift workers, for example. So it's using essentially artificial daylight to get their kind of response that we would otherwise be missing. I've seen the alarm clocks that use something along the lines of that. Mm. I haven't used one yet, but I've, I've seen them. But I have friends who swear by them. Mm. And it wakes them up naturally with a light and that the light gradient increases bit by, as the, as the, before the alarm clock. Right, yeah. Fascinating. So, yeah, so anything like that can be really useful. And yeah, trying to just think about generally when are we getting exposure to light and dark uh, is probably going to be beneficial. Okay. Tip number three, classic one, uh, enjoyable activity, making mm. activity fun. Yeah, so this is, I mean, we could go on forever about the benefits of exercise and generally being physically active. There's literally any metric we take tends to be beneficial if someone exercises versus they don't. And so the reason why I put it enjoyable here is because, again, if we're thinking about sustainability over time, if you have general uh, exercise practices or just being physically active that isn't even like pre-planned training per se, but that you find enjoyable, it's going to mean it becomes more of a lifestyle thing. And I think sometimes we forget that in fitness because our bias is that we found this stuff enjoyable. Like we like training we or we're interested in sports and we need to realize, well, maybe not everyone wants to necessarily go to the gym or might not lift lifting weights or doing powerlifting or whatever. So we have to find, well, try a whole bunch of stuff and something is going to stick out and you're going to enjoy and then just trying to include more activity in general. And this probably goes beyond just being in the gym as well. I think uh, we see quite clearly that it's 
just outside of, if you train for an hour, let's say three times a week in the gym, fine, that's good. But also you want to think about how can I generally be physically active outside of that as well. So that's where, even if it's going for a walk, meeting up with friends, if you like cycling, any, any type of activity, how can we build more of that into your lifestyle? And of course, once it's fun, that leads to your next tip, which is social interaction, because you surround yourself with other people who do similar sports or right. generally, and you chat more and you talk more. Yeah. So one of the things, if you look at like long-term, like mortality statistics, risk of chronic disease, one of the factors that's almost right up at the top is social isolation and tied close to loneliness. So two slightly different concepts, but very much related. And so the importance of social connection over time with uh, either a spouse, peer groups, colleagues, people that you spend a lot of time with, and just being around humans, talking, uh, human touch, all these things have profound impacts on health over time. And so trying to build that in that we're keeping that social connection, which is probably becoming... Now we can be more connected in an online sense, but have less actual real human connection. It's very easy to do that. Um, and I, I speak for myself as well, because I work predominantly online. It's very easy for me to spend large chunks of time not surrounded by people. So purposely putting in time of when, are, when can I organize to hang out with friends, to spend time with family, people I care about, um, peer groups. And that's why I think uh, in certain settings you find um, people find a, a lifestyle change or a tribe in something like, say, a CrossFit, where it's not just, you're not just doing that training, it's you now have this social group that have this similar goal that you get on really well with. People start doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or MMA, and there's now this group of people that becomes a huge part of their life. And so trying to find how can we keep more of that social interaction in a world where it's increasingly easy to, for that to slip away, I think. Cool. Folks, as always, you're listening to the Real Health Podcast in association with Leia Healthcare with me, Carl Henry. Um, it's fascinating to have Danny Lennon in studio. I followed his stuff for a really long time and we've been we've been hoping to get him in. The tips, the content, it's easy, it's applicable, and it works. So apply the tips that you're learning so far. We've got we've gone through four. Now we're gonna head for nutrition, your expert mm -hmm. area, and you've you've a top six here for us. Um protein intake is your first one. Yeah, the reason why I bring up protein is that we know at a, a kind of general population level, we have uh, the, the way protein gets distributed across the day on average is that people do pretty well with protein at dinner. So either that's through having a piece of meat typically, so that the classic dinner people have of some meat or fish, either with some potatoes and veg. Um, but usually we see pretty low protein intakes at other times of the day, particularly at breakfast and at snacks. Uh, one of the benefits of having protein at those other times not only brings up our daily protein intake, but protein of all those macronutrients has the highest satiety impact, so making you feel full in those kind of hours afterwards. So that will likely impact your food choices later in the day. So by simply, if you typically have, say, a breakfast of some toast and jam, let's say, with virtually no protein there, just carbohydrate, and now we get someone having a higher protein breakfast, that can have influences on their food choices the rest of the day without necessarily counting calories or, or tracking any anything they're eating, just from the fullness that that's going to give them and, and that's going to impact their later foods. Um, we also know for people who are maybe training, it helps with muscle recovery quite a lot. And anyone who is then trying to maybe lose body fat over time if they're dieting, one of the things protein is going to help with is preserving that lean body mass, which is going to be important. So for that reason, trying to find, is there parts of your day where you're not really eating 
protein at a certain meal, can we make some sort of food substitution to include something like that? So at breakfast, it might be having a breakfast of like a few eggs. It could be having some Greek yogurt and some berries. It could be adding a scoop of whey protein powder to a bowl of uh, porridge, for example. All these ways of trying to build in some higher protein intake across the day in, in those different meals, I think can be useful for a few of those reasons. And for general population, protein or DA on a daily basis? So the RDA for protein is set at about 0.8 grams per kilo, but that's probably pretty low in my opinion. And I think there's more groups are starting to publish work saying it should probably increase. So I think depending on where someone is starting, there's no one number I say you must have. Um, for, I think if someone was getting around 1.5 grams per kilo, that's probably really good for most people. If you're starting with a protein intake though, that's very low already. It's probably unrealistic to say I need to start getting 1.5 right now. So instead, over time of how can you just increase the amount of protein in your in your meals? And so from a baseline level, the way we talk through people is instead of worrying exactly how many grams you're eating per day, let's just look at your, say, three main meals and maybe a snack. And is there a good source of protein in there? So we'll typically have a list or uh, different pictures of different serving sizes of protein, high protein foods, and say, can we get one of those on your plate for each of these main meals? So if you're doing that three times a day and getting a food that corresponds to, say, 30-ish grams of protein, you're probably doing really well. Snacking frequency, tip number six. How often should people snack? Because yeah. there, there is a classic three meals, two snacks. Or, you know, a breakfast mm. snack, lunch snack, dinner. Mm. You have other people who will go with, it doesn't matter when you snack, once it's within your a time frame or calorific intake. What's your take on it? Yeah, so t this is one that's more kind of pragmatic in that you're, you're dead right that theoretically, if someone has uh, zero snacks or three snacks per day, as long as their overall intake is the same, it's not going to make any difference. And that's perfectly fine. From a more practical sense is typically when people are either gaining weight when they don't want to or they're struggling to reduce their overall caloric intake and maybe their goal is to diet. One of the primary ways that we see people that are totting up a lot of calories is not necessarily that they're having these huge extravagant big main meals. It's that they're having a normal breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but they're having several snacks across the day that don't even almost register as a meal, right? They'll have something here or there, and they could be snacking a lot more frequently than they realize, particularly in the evening time. They're sitting watching some TV. It could be three or four what look like small snacks, but you add them up, that's a considerable amount of calories compared to what they're having. So the reason why I put this is if someone is trying to reduce their overall caloric intake, putting a cap on that and saying, I'm going to have three main meals and let's say one snack. If they're doing that from typically having an unrestricted snacking frequency, again, without having to track or count any kind of calories, it's probably going to reduce their caloric intake and they find that a bit more useful. So just because that's a common way where people tend to overeat is not necessarily through, like I say, big, massive meals all the time. It's actually pretty reasonable lunches and dinners a lot of people have, and it ends up being the times outside of those. Type of snacks? So we typically advise people, again, try and have some sort of high-protein snack if possible, again, depending on their goal. So if we have an athlete who is struggling to eat enough food already, it'll be the opposite. But for most people who are trying to keep within a certain overall uh, food intake, I think having a high-protein snack is probably a good idea. This might be something like, again, some Greek yogurt. Maybe it sh could be some uh, whey protein. It could be... Um, some leftover meat that they put into a kind of salad, some things like this. Um, so high protein snacks probably is a good start. Okay, cool. Um, 
Number seven, basic cooking food prep skills. Something mm. that our people have less and less of. Right. Um, we see that with, with clients all the time. Yeah, so this is, again, one that's not necessarily necessary, but I think makes a big difference. I think one of the struggles with people trying to change their food habits is usually they get some advice, but then trying to apply that becomes problematic if, well, I don't know how to put together these types of meals. I've been told certain calories or macronutrients did, but I don't know how to do that. Or it's just such a pain for me to try and put meals together. Or the biggest thing is I'm getting a, an idea of like a, a diet plan off someone, but all these meals taste terrible. So just some learning some basic cooking and food preparation skills can really not only allow you to take more control over the food you're having because you know what's going into it as opposed to having it to buy it out, but also you can play around with stuff and make healthy food actually taste nice. And you can also find ways that makes it easier to do. So if you learn some food preparation and some cooking skills, it doesn't have to be top level, but it's simply saying that you can put together a meal quickly that tastes reasonably good and is of decent quality food, it's going to be much more likely you're able to stay doing that. So working on that either from, there's lots of places you can kind of learn through that and a lot of it's self-experimentation, but having that I think is a, uh, a big starting point for actually being able to make long-term change and eat in a certain pattern. Yeah, or even have a certain amount of meals that you know you can cook without having to think about it. Right, yeah. And better. again, it doesn't have to be extravagant. It could be the same few meals that you know you really enjoy, but it means you can fall back and rely on them. Even having more food prepared that's left in the fridge, for example, now meals are those, those times you get home late from work or you're really tired, rather than saying, well, I have nothing prepared, I'm not really going to cook now. If you have something already there, it increases the probability at least that you're probably going to reach for that as opposed to something that you don't want to have or whatever it is. Or you found the takeaway. Right, so yeah, I mean, do. that's yeah. it, yeah. Um, food environment in the home, tip number eight. Yeah, so our food environment, essentially what is left around us, we see quite clearly is uh, can influence our food choices. And so there's been, for example, studies that looked at if you're in a workplace and we were to take a bowl of, say, M&Ms, and you can imagine that if it's on your work desk and we leave that bowl there, without really being too conscious of it, you'd probably take a fair amount of that. Uh, they've done ones where they move that from there to in your desk still, but like in a drawer or a cabinet beside it. And that barrier alone will probably reduce the frequency at which you do it. And then if you move it to the other side of the room, again, reduces it further. So having these mini kind of barriers is sometimes enough to stop something becoming a kind of subconscious thing. You see the same with, for example, where people leave foods like breakfast cereals. If they're left out on a countertop versus they're actually in a press, it stops that kind of, as I'm walking by, I'm going to grab a handful of this. Uh, the same you can think about the foods that people have in their diet. So one example I typically talk about is, say, ice cream, that there's no reason to ban ice cream from anyone's diet. I think it should be enjoyed in moderation, uh, and it's something that we can all include. However, if someone is finding, when I have like a two-liter tub of ice cream at home, I'm just constantly having it all the time, or I, it's just, for me, a trigger food. I have a small bit, and I want all of it. So then we can say, well, instead of having it within your immediate environment at home, anytime you want it, maybe you go out somewhere and get a serving of it, but you're not going to have it around all the time where it's a kind of battle against that. And so setting up things like what is in your uh, press and your fridge at home versus then also what's invisible sight can make a difference. Uh, being some research looking at where if you have one particular area where all your, say, let's say, quote, unquote, treat foods um, are left versus having them everywhere in plain sight 
probably dictates the frequency at which they're consumed. So just thinking about what is in our immediate food environment and probably saying, I'm not going to ban any foods like an ice cream or chocolate or so on, but rather than having lots of them in limitless supplies left around the kitchen, I'm going to be purposeful of, okay, today I really want to go and have a bar of chocolate. I'm going to go down and shop. I'm going to buy one. You know exactly what the serving then is going to be, and you're not going to go crazy on that. And then the same thing with other foods. There's ways we can design our food environment that doesn't ban foods, but decreases the likelihood of it becoming problematic. Cool. Number nine, food choices. Yeah, so food choices here is, is a simple, in the simplest sense of we can make certain choices that will, again, influence the likelihood of what we eat over the course of the day. So one I've already mentioned is foods that have a high satiety value, mm -hmm. for example, like protein. Same thing with fiber, makes us feel fuller for longer. So that's the benefit of eating foods that are high in fiber or fibrous vegetables can increase that feeling of fullness. Other things that relate to our likelihood of what we're going to eat over the day would be foods that are what we call hyper palatable. And I mentioned this a bit earlier. So certain foods, most of the ones we think of that are ultra processed are so rewarding to our brain that it kind of bypasses a lot of our inbuilt satiety mechanisms to kind of eat at a certain amount where, or it's easy to overeat on the food. We, we eat way more calories and don't really feel that full from them. So an example, if you take um, any type of food that has a lot of food engineering to it, it's not necessarily the chemicals or anything bad about it. You can enjoy those foods, no problem. But example I would give is uh, if you take something like uh, Pringles or Doritos or something like that, right? And you take a, a, a large serving of them. This is a food that is not only got uh, salt, uh, fat, flavoring, but it comes down to things like the texture, the touch, the smell, visual, all these sensory inputs are, it's what we work on in, in the food industry. There's like those food labs that will design this product to be as pleasurable as possible. And so as you're eating some of this, unless you consciously say this is the amount I'm going to have it's very easy to eat more and more of that so if you take the the stereotypical large tube of Pringles is it realistic that if someone starts and says I'm just going to stop when I'm full you would probably eat what's classified as quote-unquote one serving probably a lot more than that and again a lot of that is down to the hyper palatability of that food and so trying to find or I suppose limit the portion size or the servings or the opportunities where we have those foods to something we know ahead of time. And then you can set up your diet in the opposite way. What foods give me the most satiety? So high protein, high fiber, and then the kind of food novelty around that as well of having, um, rather than like buffet style meals all the time, probably having kind of set meals where you know what's in them ahead of time, few kind of ingredients, and then limiting the amount of those hyper palatable foods probably has knock on effects to how much you're going to eat over the day, irrespective of having to count that, that, that food. Okay, so planning, I suppose, is one of the big words that covers all of the nutrition tips so far across mm. the board. The final one I, I want to chat about is fluid. Uh, we haven't kind of touched on it yet mm. in terms of what people are drinking, in terms of drinking during the day, water content, and maybe uh, versus soft drinks, and just the general kind of fluid intake during the sure. day, tea, coffee, because it's what people are drinking all the time, and I'm fascinated by your thoughts on yeah, it. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things we see that is across the board associated with increased caloric intake, increased fat gain is the drinking of sugar-sweetened beverages. So any of your typical soft drinks that are full of sugar that people talk about, one of the issues 
is that for the amount of calories and uh, sugar that's in those, you don't get the same uh, satiety feedback that you would if you had that as a solid meal, even of the same number of calories with the same amount of sugar. So those liquid uh, beverages with that amount of sugar and calories kind of bypass some of that feedback. So it's very easy to tot up quite a lot of calories, high amount of sugar in those very easily. Um, so one of the easiest changes from a pragmatic sense would be if you regularly consume those, then even switching over to something like a diet version, like going to like a Diet Coke rather than a, a Coca-Cola, you're um, still able to have something that tastes sweet, but you're not getting that same load of calories and, and sugar within that. So switching away from sugar sweetened beverages is probably a good idea to having whatever beverages you do have as non-caloric ones, whether that's like water, black coffee, maybe something sweetened with an artificial uh, sweetener like um, any of the ones that we just talked about, like a Diet Coke um, or a Diet Squash, for example, is probably better than a full version. Uh, what It's one of the places where people are can be totting up a lot of calories without realizing. So one you mentioned, it'd be like coffees. So coffee's totally fine to have. And if you take an Americano, for example, is virtually nothing, no calories in there, maybe 10, uh, something ridiculously small. But a lot of time people saying they wouldn't even report that they're having a coffee because, well, it's just a, a drink. But you know if you go into any coffee shop now, you can get something that is any type of concoction of coffee with <laughs> cream, sugar, flavoring, all that in it. And you could have several hundred calories worth of, of coffee um, multiple times a day without even registering that, oh, that's a meal that I'm having. And so that's one place, again, going back to the idea of looking at what you're doing on a typical basis, how many of your beverages have a um, caloric value and how can we switch to maybe some like non-caloric beverages typically and then ideally being water but not necessarily having to do that depending on where someone's start point is. Sigma Nutrition. Where can people find out more about it and more about you? Yeah, so the easiest place, I guess, is sigmanutrition.com. has all the information up there about my background, all the stuff we got going on. Uh, if they're interested in podcasts, which hopefully they are if they're listening to this, <laughs> uh, my podcast is called Sigma Nutrition Radio. They can just type that into any podcast app. And then I'm pretty easy to find, I think, on social media. Just type in my name. Or if they're going to Instagram, it's just Danny Lennon underscore Sigma. Any of those places, I'm happy to take any questions or uh, criticism maybe as well if people don't like me after this. Uh, but yeah, any of those places would be cool. Yeah, cool. Well, folks, I can certainly recommend his podcast. I listen to it myself. I have done for a long time. So if you're looking for a nutrition-specific podcast, without a doubt, Sigma is the way to go and it's the one Thank to you. listen to because it's research, it's science-backed. As you know, when we have experts on the podcast, we're very passionate about we have the right ones on and they're giving the right kind of advice and that all comes backed by science and backed by research. So it's essential. Uh, Danny Lennon, thank you so much for coming into the Real Health Karen, Podcast today. Thanks for having me. Folks, um, we really hope you enjoyed those. You've got 10 really simple, effective tips that will improve your health. So try those over the course of the next week. As ever, if you have any questions for us or feedback for us, it's realhealth.independent.ie or at carlhenrypt on Twitter and on Instagram. And as ever, we will be back next week with more inspirational guests and tips and content to improve your health. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you soon. Slonga fo. Leia Healthcare. It's good to live. Proud sponsor of the Real Health Podcast with Carl Henry.